Welcome to Jeeves in the Morning, Volume 12. Chapter 29 I don't know if the name of Lot's wife is familiar to you, and if you were told about her rather remarkable finish. I may not have got the facts right, but the story as I heard it was that she was advised not to look round at something or other, or she would turn into a pillar of salt. So naturally imagining that they were simply pulling a leg, she looked round and bing, a pillar of salt. And the reason I mention this now is that the very same thing seemed to have happened to Uncle Percy. Crouching there with his fingers riveted to the marmalade jar, he appeared to have turned into a pillar of salt. If it hadn't been that the ginger whiskers were quivering gently, you would have said that life had ceased to animate the rigid limbs. It appears that Master Thomas is now out of danger, my lord, and no longer has need of her ladyship's ministrations. The whiskers continued to quiver. I didn't blame them. I knew just how the old relative must be feeling, for, as I have already indicated, he made no secret when chatting with me of his apprehensions concerning the shape of things to come, should Aunt Agatha ever learn that he had been attending fancy-dressed dances in her absence. The poignant drama of it all had not escaped Nobby either. Golly, Uncle Percy. A womanly pity in her voice that became her well. That is a bit awkward, isn't it? You'll have to devote a minute or two when you see her to explaining why you were out all night, won't you? Her words had the effect of bringing the unhappy man out of his trance or coma as if she had touched off a stick of dynamite underneath him. He moved, he stirred, he seemed to feel the rush of life along his keel. Jeeves! He said hoarsely. My lord. Jeeves! My lord. Uncle Percy shoved out his tongue about an inch, moistening the lips with the tip of it. It was plain that he was finding it no easy matter to get speech over the larynx. Her ladyship, Jeeves, tell me, is she, has she, is she by any chance aware of my absence? Yes, my lord. She was appraised a bit by the head housemaid. I left them in conference. You tell me his lordship's bed has not been slept in, her ladyship was saying. Her agitation was most pronounced. I caught Uncle Percy's eye. It had swiveled round at me with a dumb, pleading look in it, as if saying the suggestions would be welcomed. How would it be, I said. Well, one had to say something. If you told her the truth. The truth? He repeated dazedly, and you can see he thought the idea of a novel one. That you went to the ball to confer with Clam. He shook his head. I could never convince your aunt I've gone to a fancy-dressed ball for purely business motives. Women are so prone to think the worst. Well, there is something in that. Oh, it's no good trying to make them see reason, because they talk so damn quick. No. Said Uncle Percy. This is the end. I can only set my teeth and take my medicine like a gentleman. Unless, of course, Jeeves has something to suggest. This perked him up for an instant. Then the drawn, haggard look came back into his face, and he shook the lemon again, slowly and despondently. Impossible. The situation is beyond Jeeves. No situation is beyond Jeeves, I said with a quiet rebuke. In fact, I went on, scrutinising the man closely, I believe something is fermenting now inside that spacious bean. Am I wrong, Jeeves, in supposing I can see the light of inspiration in your eyes? 
No, sir. You are quite correct. I think that I may perhaps be able to offer a satisfactory solution to his lordship's difficulties. Uncle Percy inhaled sharply. An odd look came into the unoccupied areas of his face. I heard him murmur something under his breath about fish. You mean that, Jeeves? Of course, my lord. Then let us have it, I said, feeling rather like some impresario of performing fleas who watches a star member of his troop advance to the footlights. What's this solution of which you speak? Well, sir, it occurred to me that, as his lordship has, as I understand, given his consent to the union of Mr. Fiddleworth and Miss Hopwood, Uncle Percy uttered an animal cry. I haven't, or if I did, I've withdrawn it. Very good, my lord. In that case, I have nothing to suggest. There was a silence. One could sense the struggle proceeding in Uncle Percy's bosom. I saw him look at Boko and quiver. Then a strong shudder passed through the frame, and I knew he was recalling what Jeeves had said about Aunt Agatha's agitation being most pronounced. When Aunt Agatha's agitation is pronounced, she has a way of drawing her eyebrows together and making her nose look like an eagle's beak. Strong men have quailed at the spectacle, repeatedly. I may as well hear what you got to say, I suppose. He said at length. Quite, I agreed. No harm in having a... What, Jeeves? Academic discussion, sir. Thank you, Jeeves. Not at all, sir. Carry on, then. Very good, sir. It merely occurred to me that, had his lordship consented to the union, nothing would have been more natural than he should have visited Mr. Fiddleworth at his home for the purpose of talking the matter over and making arrangements for the wedding. Immersed in this absorbing subject, his lord would quite understandably have lost count of the time. I yipped intelligently. I got the set-up. And when he looked at his watch and found out how late it was... Precisely, sir. When his lordship looked at his watch and found how late it was, Mr. Fiddleworth hospitably suggested that he should pass the remainder of the night beneath his roof. His lordship agreed that this would be the most convenient course, and so it was arranged. I looked at Uncle Percy, confidently, expecting the salvo of applause, and was amazed to find him shaking the bean once more. It won't work, he said. Why on earth not? It's a pip. He kept oscillating the lozenge. No, Bertie, a scheme is not practical. Your aunt, my dear boy, is a suspicious woman. She probes beneath the surface, asks questions, and the first one she would ask on this occasion would be, why merely in order to discuss wedding arrangements with my ward's future husband did I dress up as Simbad the Sailor? You can see for yourself how awkward that question would be, and how difficult to answer. The point was well taken. A snag, Jeeves, can you get around it? Quite easily, sir. Before returning to the hall, his lordship could borrow a suit of clothes from you, sir. Of course he could. Clad in the herringbone tweed, which is in the cupboard in my bedroom, Uncle Percy, you could look at Agatha in the eye without a tremor. I dare say you have frequently, when strolling in your garden, seen a parched flower beneath a refreshing downpour. It was such a flower that Uncle Percy now irresistibly reminded me of. He seemed to swell and burgeon, as it were, 
and the strained eyes lost that resemblance to the underside of a dead fish, which had been so noticeable since the beginning of this sequence. Good Lord! He exclaimed. You're quite right. I could. Jeeves! He went on emotionally. You must have that brain of yours pickled and presented to some national museum. Very good, my lord. When you're done with it, of course. Come on, Bertie. Auction, auction. Hole for the herringbone to eat. This way, Uncle Percy, I said, and we started for the door to find our path barred by Bogo. He was looking a bit green about the gills, but firm and resolute. Just a minute, said Bogo. Not so jolly fast, if you don't mind. How about the Guardian's blessing? Do I cop? Of course you do, old bird, I said soothingly. That's all budgeted in for the estimates. Uncle Percy? Eh, hey, what? The Guardian's bee, you're dishing that out. Once more, there was that silent struggle. Then he nodded somberly. It seems unavoidable. It is unavoidable. Then I won't try to avoid it. Okay, Boko, you're all set. Good, said Boko. I'll just have that in writing, if you don't mind, my dear Warpleston. I don't want to cop or criticise, but there's been a lot of in and out running about this business to the present date, and one would welcome a few words in black and white. You'll find pen and ink on the table in the corner. Sing out, my dear Warpleston, if the nib doesn't suit you, and I will provide you with another. Uncle Percy went to the table in the corner and took pen in hand. It would be too much to say that his demeanour as he did so was rollicking, I fancy that up to this moment he'd been entertaining a faint hope. If his luck held, he might somehow derive the benefits from Jeeves's scheme without having to sit in on its drawbacks. However, as I say, he took pen in hand and, having scribbled for a moment or so, handed the result to Boko, who read it through and handed it to Nobby, who read it through and tucked it away with a satisfied okie-dokie in some safe deposit in the recesses of a costume. She'd scarcely done so, when heavy official footsteps sounded without, and Stilton came clumping in. You will scarcely believe me, but it is a fact that I had been so tensely gripped by the drama of the last quarter hour that the Stilton angle had been completely expunged from my mind, and it was only now as I watched him heave too that the thought of the Worcester personal peril came back to me. The first thing he did on entering the room was to give me one of those looks of his, and it chilled my insides like a quart of ice cream. I had a shot and an airy. Ah, there you are, Stilton. But my heart was not in it, and it elicited no response except a short ho. Having got this ho off, which, as I have explained, was in the nature of a sort of signature tune, he addressed himself to Boko. You were right about the warrant, he said. The sergeant says I've got to have one. I brought it along. It has to be signed by the Justice of the Peace. Here, for the first time, he seemed to become aware of Uncle Percy's identity, which, of course, had been shrouded from him by the whiskers. Why, hello, Lord Warpleston. He said. You're just the man I was looking for. If you will shove your name on the dotted line, we can go ahead. So, you went to that fancy dress ball last night? He said, giving him the eye. I think he had merely intended to be chatty and to show kindly interest, as it were, in the relatives' affairs. But he had said the wrong thing. Uncle Percy stiffened haughtily. What do you mean, I went to the fancy dress ball last night? 
I did nothing of the kind. I shall be glad if you will refrain from making loose statements of that description. Went to the fancy dress ball indeed. What fancy dress ball? Where? It's news to me that there has been a fancy dress ball. His generous indignation seemed to take Stilton back. Oh, sorry. He said. I just thought. The costume, I mean. Oh, what about the costume? If my ward and her future husband are planning an evening of amateur theatricals and asked me as a personal favour to put on the costume of Sinbad the Sailor to see if I was the type for the port, is it so singular that I should have good-humouredly have acceded to their wishes? And is it any business of yours? Doesn't it entitle you to jump to idiotic conclusions about fancy dress balls? Have I got to explain every simple little action of mine to every flat-footed copper that comes along and can't keep his infernal nose out of my business? These are not easy questions to answer, and the best Stilton could do was shuffle his feet and say, Oh, ah, well, anyway. He said, after a rather painful pause, changing the subject and getting back to the res, Would you mind signing this warrant? Warrant? What warrant? What's it all about? What's all this nonsense about warrants? There was a sound in the background like a distant sheep coughing gently on a mountainside. Jeeves sailing into action. If I might explain, your lordship, it appears that in the course of yesterday afternoon, the officer's uniform was purloined as he bathed in the river. He accuses Mr. Worcester of the crime. Mr. Worcester? Bertie? My nephew? Yes, my lord. To me, a most bizarre theory. One seeks in vain for a motive which could plausibly have led Mr. Worcester to perpetrate such an outrage. The constable, I understand, alleges that Mr. Worcester desired the uniform in order to be able to attend the fancy dress ball. This seemed to interest Uncle Percy. There really was a fancy dress ball then, was there? Yes, my lord. At the neighbouring town of East Wibley. Odd! I never heard about it. A very minor affair, my lord, I gather. Not at all the sort of entertainment in which a gentleman of Mr. Worcester's position would condescend to participate. Of course not. I wouldn't have gone to it myself. Just one of those potty little country affairs, eh? Precisely, my lord. Nobody knowing Mr. Worcester would suppose for a moment that he would waste his sweetness on such desert air. Eh? A quotation, my lord. The poet Grey. Ah, but you say the officer sticks to it that he did? Yes, my lord. It is fortunate, therefore, that your lordship passed the night in this house, and so is able to testify that Mr. Worcester never left the premises. Dash it, fortunate. It settles the whole thing. I never know when I'm telling a story where a couple of fellows are talking and a third fellow is trying to shove his oar in whether to interpolate the last name's gulps and gurgles in the run of the dialogue, or wait till it's all over and then chalk up these gurgles and gulps to their utter score. I think it works out smoother the second way, and that is why, in recording the above exchanges, I've left out Stilton's attempts to chip in. All through this James Warpleston exchange of ideas, he'd been trying to catch the speaker's eye, only to be shushed and be quieted, officer, by Uncle Percy. Alone in the conversation, having occurred at the word thing, he was now able to speak his piece. 
I tell you, the accused Worcester did pinch my uniform. He cried, his eyes bulging more than ever. Cheeks are pretty scarlet. It was seen on his bed by the witness, Edwin. Things were going so well that I felt equal to raising the eyebrows and coming through with a light, amused laugh. Edwin Uncle Percy, one smiles, does one not? The relative backed me up notably. Smiles? Certainly one smiles, like the Dickens. Are you trying to tell me? He said, letting Stilton have the eye in no uncertain measure. That this preposterous accusation of yours is based on the unsupported word of my son Edwin. I can scarcely credit it. Can you, Jeeves? Most extraordinary, my lord. But possibly the officer is not aware that Mr. Worcester inflicted a personal assault upon Master Edwin yesterday, and so does not realize how biased any statement on the part of the young gentleman regarding Mr. Worcester must inevitably be. Don't make excuses for him. The man's a fool, I should like to say said Uncle Percy, swelling up like a balloon and starting to give Stilton the strong remarks from the bench. That we have had, in my opinion, far too much of late of these wild and irresponsible accusations on the part of the police. A deplorable spirit is creeping into the force, and as long as I remain justice of the peace, I shall omit no word or act to express my strongest disapproval of it. I shall stop it out, root and branch, and see to it that the liberty of the subject is not placed in jeopardy by officers of the law who so far forget their, yes, dash it, their sacred obligations as to bring trumped up charges right and left in the selfish desire to secure promotion. I've nothing further to add except to express my profound regret that you should have been subjected to this monstrous persecution, Bertie. It's quite all right, Uncle Percy. It's not all right. It's outrageous. I advise you and the future officer to be very, very careful. And as for that warrant of yours, you can take it and stick it. However, that is neither here nor there. It was good stuff. Indeed, I can't remember ever having heard better, except once when I was a stripling and Aunt Agatha was ticking me off for breaking a valuable china vase with my catapult. I confidently expected Stilton to cower beneath it like a worm in a thunderstorm, but he didn't. It was plain that he burned, not with shame and remorse, but with the baffled fury of the man who, while not quite abreast of the run of the scenario, realizes that dirty work is afoot at the crossroads, and that something swift is being slipped across him. Oh, he said, and paused for a moment to wrestle with his feelings. Then, with generous emotion... It's a bonny conspiracy, he cried. It's a low-down, horn-swoggling plot to defeat the ends of justice. For the last time, Lord Warpleston, will you sign this warrant? Nothing could have been more dignified than Uncle Percy's demeanour. He drew himself up and his voice was quiet and cold. I've already indicated what you can do without warrant. I think, officer, that it would be well if you were to go and sleep it off, for the kindest interpretation which I can place upon your extraordinary behaviour is that you are intoxicated. Bertie, show the constable the door. I showed Stilton the door and he took a sort of dazed look at it, as if it was the first time he had seen the body thing. 
Many navigators slowly threw and disappeared, not even pausing to say ho over his shoulder. The impression I received was that his haughty spirit was at last crushed. Presently we heard the sound of his violin cases tramping away down the garden path. And now, my boy, said Uncle Percy as the last echoes died away. For that herringbone tweed, also a bath and a shave and a cup of strong black coffee with perhaps the merest suspicion of brandy in it. And perhaps it would be as well when I am ready to start for the hall if you were to accompany me. To add your testimony to mine regarding my spending last night under this roof. You will not falter, will ya? You will support my statement, will you not? In a strong, resonant voice, carrying conviction in every syllable. Nothing on these occasions creates so unfortunate an impression as the pause for thought, the hesitating utterance, the nervous twiddling of the fingers. Above all, remember not to stand on one leg. Right, my boy? Let us go. I escorted him to my room, dug out the suit, showed him the bathroom, and left him to it. When I got back to the dining room, Boko had gone, but Nobby was still there, chatting with Jeeves. She greeted me warmly. Boko's gone to fetch his car, she said. We're going to run up to London and get married. Wonderful how everything has come out, isn't it? I thought Uncle Percy was terrific. Most impressive, I agreed. And what words the tongue could utter could give even a sketchy idea of how one feels about you, Jeeves. I am deeply gratified, miss, if I've been able to give satisfaction. I've said it before and I'll say it again. There's no one like you. Thank you very much, miss. I think this might have gone on for some time, for Nobby was plainly filled to the back teeth with girlish enthusiasm. But at this point I interrupted. I would be the last man ever to deprive Jeeves of his meed of praise, but I had a question of compelling interest to put. Have you shown Florence that letter of mine, Nobby? I asked. A sudden cloud came over her eager map and she made a clicking noise. I knew there was something I had forgotten. Oh, Bertie, I'm so sorry. Sorry? I said, filled with nameless fear. I've been meaning to tell you. When I got up this morning, I couldn't find that letter anywhere and I was looking for it when Edwin came along and told me he had done an act of kindness last night by tidying my room. I think he must have destroyed the letter. He generally does destroy all correspondence when he tidies rooms. I'm most awfully sorry, but I expect you'll find some other way of coping with Florence. Ask Jeeves. He's sure to think of something. Ha! Ah, she said as a booming voice came from the great open spaces. There's Boko calling me. Goodbye, Bertie. Goodbye, Jeeves. I must rush. And she was gone with the wind. I turned to Jeeves with a pale, set face. Yes, sir. Can you think of a course to pursue? No, sir. You're baffled? For the moment, sir, unquestionably. I fear that Miss Hopwood overestimated my potentialities. Come, come, Jeeves. It's not like you to be a... What's the word? It's on the tip of my tongue. Defeatist, sir. That's right. It's not like you to be a defeatist. Don't give it up. Go and brood in the kitchen. There may be some fish there. Did you notice any when you were there yesterday? Only a tin of anchovy paste, sir. My heart sank a bit. Anchovy paste is a slender reed on which to lean in a major crisis. Still, it was fish within the meaning of the act, and no doubt contained its quota of phosphorus. Go and wade into it, Jeeves. Yes, sir. 
Very good, sir. Don't spare the stuff. Dig it out with a spoon, I said, and dismissed him with a moody gesture. Moody was the word which would have described my aspect. As a few moments later, I left the house and proceeded to the garden, feeling in need of a bit of air. I had kept up a brave front, but I had little real hope that anchovy paste would bring home the bacon. As I stood at the garden gate, staring somberly before me, I was at a pretty low ebb. I mean to say I had been banking everything on the letter. I had counted on it to destroy the Worcester glamour in Florence's eyes. And lacking that, I couldn't see how she was going to be persuaded that I was not a king among men. Not for the first time, I found myself musing bitterly on young Edwin. The fons et origo, a Latin expression, of all my troubles. I was just regretting that we were not in China, where it would have been a simple matter to frame up something against the child, thus putting him in line for the death of a thousand cuts, when my reverie was interrupted by the ting of a bicycle bell. And Stilton came wheeling up. After what had passed, of course, it was not agreeable to be closeted with this vindictive copper, and I am not ashamed to say that I backed a pace. In fact, I would probably have gone on backing, had he not reached out a hand like a ham and grabbed me by the slack of my coat. Stand still, you blasted object. He said. I have something to say to you. You couldn't write? No, I couldn't write. Don't wriggle. Listen. I could see the man was wrestling with some strong emotion and could only hope that it was not homicidal. The eyes glittered and the face was flushed. Listen. He said again. You know that engagement of yours. To Florence? Yes, to Florence. It's off. Off? Off. Said Stilton. A sharp exclamation passed my lips. I clutched to the gate for support. The sun, which a moment before had gone behind a cloud, suddenly came shooting out like a rabbit and started shining like the dickens. On every side, it seemed to me, birds began to tottle their songs of joy. It will give you some rough indication of my feelings when I tell you that not only did all nature become beautiful, but even for an instant, Stilton. Through a sort of pink mist, I heard myself asking faintly what he meant. The question caused him to frown with some impatience. You can understand words of one syllable, can't you? I tell you, your engagement is off. Florence is going to marry me. I met her as I came away from this pest house and had it out with her. After that revolting exhibition of fraud and skullduggery in there, I decided to resign from the force and told her so. It removed the only barrier that had ever been between us. Questioned, she broke down and came clean, admitting that she always loved me and had got engaged to you merely to score off me for something I had said about modern enlightened thought. I withdrew the remark, and she fell into my arms. She seemed not to like the idea of breaking the news to you, so I said I would do it. And if young blasted Worcester has anything to say, I told her, I will twist his head off and ram it down his throat. Have you anything to say, Worcester? I paused for a moment to listen to the turtling birds, then raised the map and allowed the beaming sun to play on it. Not a thing, I assured him. You realize the position. She has returned you to store. No ruddy wedding bells for you. Quite. Good. You will be leaving here fairly soon, I take it. 
almost at once. Good, said Stilton and sprang on his bicycle as if it had been a mettlesome charger. Nor did I linger. I did the distance from the gate to the kitchen in about three seconds flat. From the window of the bathroom as I passed, there came the voice of Uncle Percy as he sluiced the frame. He was singing some gay air, a sea chanty probably, which he had learned from Clam or one of the captains in his employ. Jeeves was pacing the kitchen floor deep in thought. He looked round as I entered and his manner was apologetic. It appears, sir, I regret to say, that there is no anchovy paste. It was finished yesterday. I didn't actually slap him on the back, but I gave him the dickens of a beaming smile. Never mind the anchovy paste, Jeeves. It will not be required. I've just seen Stilton. A reconciliation has taken place between him and Lady Florence, and they are once more headed for the altar rails. So, there being nothing to keep us at Steeple Bumpley, let's go. Very good, sir. The car is at the door. I paused. Oh, but dash it, we can't. Sir. I just remembered I promised Uncle Percy to go to the hall with him and help him cope with Aunt Agatha. Her ladyship is not at the hall, sir. What? But you said she was. Yes, sir. I fear I was guilty of subterfuge. I regretted the necessity, but it seemed to me essential in the best interests of all concerned. I goggled at the man. He gad, Jeeves. Yes, sir. Faintly from the distance there came the sound of Uncle Percy, working through his janty. How would it be, I suggested, to zoom off immediately without waiting to pack? I was about to suggest such a course myself, sir. It would enable one to avoid tedious explanations. Precisely, sir. Then shift ho, Jeeves, I said. It was as we were about halfway between Steeple Bumpley and the old Metrop when I mentioned that there was an expression on the tip of my tongue which seemed to me to sum up the knob of the recent proceedings. Or rather, when I say expression, I mean a saying, a wheeze, a gag, what I believe is called a saw, something about joy. But we went into all that before, didn't we? The end. This is your narrator, Jim Campanella. We hope that you've enjoyed this Uvula audio presentation of Jeeves in the Morning by P.G. Wodehouse. Performance copyright 2007 by Uvula Audio. All rights reserved. The opening and closing themes were written by the well-known BBC composer Nigel Hess. Although the themes were not written originally for this purpose, they fit the story perfectly. Please feel free to write us and tell us what you think at Uvula Audio at uvulaaudio.com. And check out our new MySpace website to contact fellow listeners. MySpace.com slash audio. We're listed on Podcast Alley, as many of you know. Please feel free to vote for the kids or adult bookcasts so that we can get more listeners. We have been the number one children's podcast on Podcast Alley now for several months. As usual, check out our Cafe Press website for t-shirts, etc. The links can be found on the main homepage of Uvula Audio. All proceeds go toward paying for bandwidth and bettering the technical quality of these casts. For other Uvula Audio titles, please go to our website at www.uvulaaudio.com. In a few weeks, the next title on this adult podcast will be The Mating Season, also by P.G. Wodehouse. The Mating Season is the sequel to Jeeves in the Morning. Before that premiere, we will be presenting Jack London's Call of the Wild, 
on the Uvula Kids bookcast. Those episodes can be downloaded from the Uvula Audio website. We must be gluttons for punishment because we're going to offer the Uvula listeners another contest. We're giving away another Uvula Audio t-shirt, again with your choice of logo, if you can answer the following question. For what BBC production did Nigel Hess originally write our Bertie and Jeeves music? Please email us at uvulaaudio at uvulaaudio.com with your guesses. We will continue to take guesses until the premiere of our next bookcast in the next few weeks or until we get the first right answer. From all of us at Uvula Audio, we thank you. <laughs>